You're listening to the Trailblazers Podcast, episode 79 with Sarah Ribner. You're listening to the Trailblazers Podcast, where we will explore the stories of successful Black professionals. Join us as we highlight the knowledge, resources, and tools of these accomplished trailblazers to help provide the know-how, confidence, and motivation you need to blaze your trail. And now, here's your host, Stephen Hart. What's up, Blazer Nation? On last week's episode, 78, with Squeaky Moore, we learned how to pitch our content, our product, and ourselves. I really enjoyed that episode. And this week, we're going to follow up on that. I spoke with Sarah Ribner. She's the co-founder of Piper Y a company that initially developed as an artisan brand and is today creating natural deodorant and actually works. And in our conversation today, Sarah and I talked through the problem that led to her and her lifelong friend and business partner actually creating this product. And we talked through what went into them building their pitch and research involved and required to not only get featured, but actually negotiate a winning outcome with one of the sharks on ABC's Shark Tank. Sarah shares how they actually went from doing 500 to 1,000 units prior to the airing and what they experienced as an almost immediate back order of over 100,000 units following that airing. You've got to hear about the challenges that they faced and what they were able to do and, and what they learned about customer service, right? And dealing with those customer service headaches that developed as a result. So much more wisdom packed into today's episode. And I think for our business owners, young founders, startups, and entrepreneurs, you're going to really take away a good bit from today's episode. Great mission feel for you. I encourage you guys, if you could, please go ahead and click the share icon right now in your podcast app and share this out on Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me. Our handle is at TBPod. I'm always good for, you know, giving you guys a shout out in social where you engage. These past few weeks, I've been getting so much love. I just want to give a special shout out to Annette, Sean, and Minda. You guys have been nonstop with, you know, just sharing this up and getting the word out about our movement, about this podcast, and about these amazing guests that we've had coming on. So go ahead, grab a pad and pen. Or open a new note on your favorite note-taking app and get set to dive into today's episode with our featured trailblazer, Sarah Ribner. Hope you enjoy. Sarah, welcome and thank you for being our featured trailblazer. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So I stumbled across your amazing brand and online probably a couple months back. And I'm a brand guy, so those things usually catch my eye. And I got all wrapped up in your story and your product and thought you'd be a great addition to our community. And I'm really excited that, you know, we get to have a talk with you today. And we've only spoken probably once before this conversation. And I have to admit, I know very little about your background besides the fact that you attended UPenn and Columbia Business School. Could you maybe start things off by telling us a little bit about you and maybe about some of your aspirations as a kid? Sure. So I actually had no idea that I was going to become an entrepreneur. (laughs) And well, interestingly enough, I didn't realize that I was already an entrepreneur before I officially started this company. So my background, it's pretty typical. I grew up in Philadelphia. I actually met my business partner in elementary school. She came up to me during my first day visiting school 
Um, I was still deciding between schools in third grade and she actually asked to be my tour guide. And then we became friends the year after. And yeah, so I stayed in Philadelphia all the way through college. I went to Penn. I, I majored in urban studies and graduated in 2011. And I didn't fully know what I wanted to do, but I wanted to kind of stick to what I was doing within my major, even though I had a lot of side passions. I kind of stuck with my major and ended up in real estate. And you know what I was doing full time wasn't the best fit. It wasn't the best culture fit. I was basically, you know, I was working in real estate finance. It really wasn't something I wanted to do long term. And I started flipping real estate on the side as a passion project because I already had the contacts in the industry. I already had my salesperson's license in New York, which is where I was working. And I became really interested in starting, you know, my own rental business on the side. And at the time I didn't realize that was an entrepreneurial thing to do. I thought it was just, you know, common sense that I had these contacts and it was a great time to, you know, get into the market in 2011. And it just, it's something that I just became really, really passionate about when I flipped my first property when I was 23. Wow. And yeah, so I, I kind of continued within real estate. Eventually I was working so much that some days I was working 15 hour days and really just as a way to kind of keep my energy level up and to stay healthy and sane. I got really into wellness, just everything from overhauling the way that I eat, sleep, my diet. And one aspect of that was also personal care. And this is at a time when the whole wellness boom was really just becoming a trend about, you know, five years ago. And there was all these new brands that were emerging that were helping people live healthier lives just in a much easier way um, with the products that they offered. And so I pretty much overhauled my entire lifestyle. And I, I was really just shocked at how much I was able to control my health, my energy level and my productivity just with, you know, the food choices and personal care product choices I was making. And I, I just got really interested in that overall lifestyle. But the one thing that was missing was natural deodorant. So that's kind of where HyperY came in. Wow. That's interesting. So describe for me the problem, right? Like, so you, that was essentially what, and you mentioned your co-founder, Jess, is it Edelstein? So maybe let's talk through the problem, right? Like you and Jess discovered this problem. Walk me through kind of what took place to get Piper Y off the ground. Yeah. So when I told her that I, when we started talking about, you know, natural personal care products, I remember being really sort of snobby about it to her. (laughs) I would go into her bathroom and say, you need to throw out this, you need to throw out that. You know, I, I was really kind of nitpicky about it. And she actually took it one step further and started making all of her own products. So was and Jess like an engineer? Like what's her background? No, she didn't have a chemistry background. It was a lot of trial and error and research. Wow. So, and she knew that natural deodorant was the one thing that I couldn't find. And so she made one for herself. She made, she gave that first version to me. And after I started trying it, I realized she was really onto something. I thought this was something great that we could use personally and after I left my first job at that time, I actually took it on a volunteer trip and I was traveling with it in really hot and humid weather all throughout Central and South America. And it held up while I was trekking in this you know, really hot climate. And I remember calling her on FaceTime and telling her that she made this incredible product wow. that, and she should really start selling it because I knew that there was a lot of demand for it just from my own research. I'd seen in so many blogs, people talking about natural deodorant. I remember going to a founder or a talk by the founder of on one of the founders of honest.com. And she said, could not find a natural deodorant. It was just this constant theme. And, you know, here we had one that she made and I was using it. And she said, she's not going to start a business without me. She wanted to start it with 
her business partner since we were nine years old. We had our first lemonade stand. And so I, I got back to Philadelphia after that trip and we just really took off from there. We bootstrapped everything, made our own packaging, made our own website. We immediately rushed it out to market because we knew that there was a lot of bloggers looking for that product. So we kind of made our own press list and sent it out to as many influencers and bloggers as we could within the first couple months. And we actually sent it to a subscription box so we could sample it to thousands of people at once. And it really took off. We hit a nerve and we got in the market at the right time. So Sarah, talk to me about timeline. I'm trying to piece together the story, right? So did you already have the idea for Piper Y going into Columbia Business School? Or is this happening while you were in school? Yeah, we had already launched at that point. So we launched in March 2014 and I worked on it. We bootstrapped while I was living in Philadelphia, saving up for school. And all throughout that summer, we just worked on growing the brand together. That September is when I started business school. So I was working on it the entire first year of school and actually tailoring all my classes to the business and using the network to forward the business. Uh And we saw so much potential and so much growth that we were still handcrafting the product. We were, I was going back to Philadelphia from New York, you know, twice a month to handcraft. We could only make 300 jars at a time between the two of us. So you guys were doing this by yourselves? Yeah, it was just the two of us because it was really an artisan brand. I mean, even though we were getting a lot of traction and we were seeing growth every month, we were still handcrafting it. So we were doing maybe 500 to 1,000 units a month at that time. So it was really small scale. And yeah, we decided to just, you know, to keep costs down, to just handcraft everything ourselves. And it, it got to the point where it was too labor intensive. And we just knew that if we wanted to scale the company, we had to scale production So that's why we decided to do the Indiegogo campaign. So that was summer of 2015. And that was actually the same time that I had applied to Shark Tank online. So our Shark Tank video was us wrapping orders and sending them out for Indiegogo. So it all tied in together. We got to talk about the Indiegogo campaign during our Shark Tank application period. And they got to see a lot of the traction that we were getting through Indiegogo and how we were acquiring all these new customers worldwide. We had actually sold in over 80 countries through that campaign. Wow. Yeah. So it was a great story to tell for Shark Tank. So by the time we went out to LA to pitch in September of that same year, we had you know all the new customers from Indiegogo. We had our new manufacturer that we had raised the money through Indiegogo to contract with them. Um, so it all tied in together. And so before you actually did the ABC Shark Tank, you, you guys actually pitched at Columbia's Shark Tank, as I understand it, right? Yeah, it was called Shark Tank Style Pitch Competition. <laughs> and it was great because we won $7,000 in seed funding. Wow. And it was the first competition we had done together. So it was a really great boost for so that was you know, your company first pitch? morale. Wow. Well, our first competition, we had pitched you know, occasionally, right. just practicing and pitching to a couple angel investors here and there. But yeah, it was our first competition. Wow. So I'd love to unpack this a bit, right? So what goes into building a successful pitch, especially knowing that you're going up, so you're getting ready for ABC Shark Tank, right? What went into building that? How much research and time did you have to put in to be ready for that? We binge watched the show nonstop and we would take (laughs) notes to the point where we were just seeing the same patterns of what kind of questions they were asking and what made the judges or the sharks tick. So we would actually... You know, we looked at as many interviews online as we could. We tried to read their books within you know reasonable time period, but we wanted to understand like what was their investment strategy, what were they individually looking for, right? And same thing with the questions. You know, what kind of answers were they looking for within what time frame? What negotiation style turned them off? What negotiation style would make them want to bite? 
And we just did so much research before we actually went out to pitch that we felt we felt pretty comfortable when we actually got into the tank. Of course, there was a few curveballs, but we overall knew what to expect. Interesting you say that. You know, I heard a post-show interview you'd done with Barbara, and she mentioned that you guys actually do pitch for nearly an hour despite, you know, most of us seeing a fraction of that time for the aired show. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you describe that feeling when you knew you're alive? Did you get nervous? I know you said you were confident having done all that research, but I mean, when they say you're alive on air, I mean, did that well, change I things? Was, <laughs> no, surprisingly, no. I was really nervous leading up to it. So four months, I had anxiety going really? into it for four months of the prep process. And actually getting in there, there was so much anticipation. We had put our lives on hold for four months. We waited and waited until we could finally get the confirmation that we were going out to LA. And then even when you get there, there's no guarantee you're going to pitch. So getting into the tank was a huge relief because we're like, finally, we we made it. Even though there was no guarantee, we made it. Right, right. Wow. And you went in wanting $50,000 for 10%, ended up holding firm. And I commend you for the way in which you held firm with Barbara to shake on 25%. Was 25% for the 50 grand, like, did you know that was going to be your line in the sand and you're prepared to walk without meeting that mark? I think we were a little surprised it went that high, but yeah. that absolutely was, yeah, that was the point where we were going to walk. And so, yeah, we, we had different scenarios in our minds of how it could go, but that was probably the absolute highest we would have accepted. Um, and, you know, initially they offered us 33%. So that's why we kept pushing back. We said we have to at least get them down to, you know, what our breakpoint was. Let me tell you, for anyone listening who has not seen this Shark Tank episode, I mean, Sarah, you were a boss in the way that, that finished off. And you held your mark right there and got the funds. Talk to me about the biggest challenges that happened after the show. We really hit a nerve. I mean, we sold out of 10,000 units. We had an inventory. Before you said that, what was your volume before the show? So we were doing 500 to 1,000 units a month. Going and, into the show? Yeah, going into the show. And we wanted to prepare 50,000 units for airing. We didn't have the money to prepare that much, but we said we'd figure out a way to do factoring or borrow something, you know, just to prepare for the show. And everyone around us said, don't worry about it. You're not going to sell that much. Just prepare 10,000. It'll be fine. So despite our gut feeling, we prepared 10,000 units based on everything we were hearing from pretty much everyone around us. We sold out of that 10,000 units in the first, basically during the pitch. And then we were back ordered <laughs> by 120,000 jars Are in the two weeks after our air date. And it kept going after that because then we got an update in February and then we had another reruns that were happening throughout the season. And we'd go even further into the backwater hole. And it took us six months to get out of it because we had to change manufacturers during that process. Yeah. So it, it was interesting. I mean, with the customer service nightmare and, you know, managing a whole new supply chain and all the things that timelines getting messed up and all the things that were going wrong with manufacturing, it was a lot to manage, but yeah, we somehow made it out. <laughs> so talk to me about maybe how Barbara as a mentor and a partner kind of helped in that process. So we worked with Barbara probably until April, April 2016. We did not end up closing. So during that process, there was a lot of, you know, we had the reruns and then she took us on the retreat. So that was another air date in April. You know, she was great for bouncing ideas and helping us, you know, manage our customers' expectations because there's a lot that 
like we, you know, there's a lot that you don't really understand with customer service nightmares as a Shark Tank company versus a normal company because everything right. is happening at once. Right. We really relied on her and her team to help us kind of navigate that and give us good ideas for managing a lot of the angry customers, basically. Mm. And yeah, so I mean, it was a great experience overall. I think, you know, we had a good working relationship at the time, unfortunately. By the time we got the contract and negotiated for several more months after that, neither side ended up closing. But you benefited by that point in, ter- in terms of the brand's growth and awareness. You mentioned yeah, something I mean, I, yeah. just a second ago, though, that there's challenges with the production and the customer service nightmares, would you say, you know, as much as this helped to increase the volume exponentially, did it hurt the brand in any way? Do you think having to do it all over again, would you do it the same way? Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> we would we would go with our gut feeling. We would prepare the 50,000 units. We'd find the money to, you know, to do that in advance. Yeah, I, I, it definitely did hurt us in the short run because, I mean, we were getting threats from people. We we're getting a lot of angry messages and it's not necessarily just about the product like there's some really big shark tank fans that are passionate about the show and they feel like they're going on this journey with you or then there's the people who don't realize that they're speaking directly with the founders because they're so used to calling into a company's customer service and getting an automated message or maybe getting scammed out of a product so there's a lot of people who are also on edge about their past experiences with other companies right and then you know we we tried we would try to individually message I think we each answered over 10,000 emails by the time we finally hired a customer service team. And the reason why we stuck with it so long was because a lot of people would calm down once they realized they were talking directly with the founder and this is a real company. It's not a scam. They're going to get their product eventually. But yeah, a lot of people were afraid that the company was a scam, that they were never going to get their product that they paid for. Right. How has that retention been do you have a good base of people now or of your fan base yeah 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 now our reorder rate just in 2017 has been 60 percent, which is almost unheard of wow our conversion rate on our website's in the double digits so that's impressive there's yeah there's really great brand loyalty and we have an amazing customer service team they you know they answer all the messages the way we would want them answered and they're incredibly passionate about helping people and you know giving them the attention that they need when they have an issue so Yeah, I think we're, in terms of customer service, like that's been really helpful to help us retain customers. So for those building a startup now, what's your advice on a good process to follow? I was thinking about, you know, to move towards a pitch and winning a competition, but you talked about, you touched on a couple other things, especially with customer service being at the center of a lot of this. What would your advice to a founder um, building a startup right now? My advice would be to just focus on you know, what you can accomplish in the long term, you're probably going to be incredibly uncomfortable in the short term. Lots of late nights, lots of worrying about money, worrying about, you know, the little things that you're doing while you're bootstrapping, probably spending a lot of time on the, you know, the day-to-day tasks that eventually you can outsource. But yeah, I would say just, you know, stick with it and, and deal with being uncomfortable in the short run for long-term success. Right. Three years in business now, what's been probably your biggest lesson as a founder and an active business owner today? Trust my gut. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, it's really never failed me because you know what's best for your brand. If you're really passionate about it and you want what's absolutely best for the company and the customers purchasing your product, you know, your instincts are probably not going to let you down. And I've had to rely on my instincts for everything from how to handle our customer service complaints, how to handle our suppliers, our partners, you know, what contracts we should be avoiding, what contracts we should be signing, you know, and like I said, the biggest mistake we made in the beginning 
listening to other people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not preparing, not going with our gut feelings and, yeah. you know, knowing what was best for the company. <laughs> Sarah, have you noticed any kind of added challenges or hurdles that you've had to get through because you're a woman-owned company? I would say with our first manufacturer, the head of the manufacturing line was a man. And I remember him sitting us down after Shark Tank when we had 120,000 backorder jars. <laughs> and he said to us, are you two really, do you really have a market for this? Do people really want this product? What? <laughs> and we're like, we're like, well, that doesn't matter, you know, because we, you know, we paid for the product to be manufactured and we have the orders, we have proof of them and we're still getting orders. That doesn't matter. You should still perform. I remember realizing that it didn't matter how much, you know, how much we paid them up front or how big of an opportunity we clearly had. Unfortunately, he saw two young women. He saw a product that he didn't think would ever have traction and wanted to focus on his other clients. And that was really tough because I, it was a function of being a female founder, but it was also a function of the size of our business and you know how much we could convince our own partner to work for us. But yeah, now we're just really careful about who we partner with and making sure that they believe in the product as much as we do. You've mentioned Jess a couple of times. She's been a lifelong friend of yours, as you've mentioned before. I have been through partnerships in the past and I can appreciate, you know, having a business relationship is different than a friendship. And sometimes you want the two to, to agree. How has that partnership helped or hurt? I would say it's helped in the fact that we have the trust. It's hurt in the fact that, you know, there is, there's a past, there's a whole past of our, basically our entire lives. Right. And so sometimes if we're arguing about a business issue, then personal things could get dragged into it. Right. So we've been actually really, I'm, I'm actually so proud of how well we've been able to establish boundaries. And sometimes we say we're putting our friendship on hold and we're just going to have professional boundaries as if we were, you know, normal coworkers at a normal company in a corporate, bigger corporation and, and really sticking to those boundaries. So, you know, personal issues don't get involved and then we can revisit the same type of friendship where we're texting all the time or we're hanging out on (laughs) weekends, you know, we revisit that later on when we're more stable with the company. So you guys are um, still as tight as you were back then. Yeah, but we we have to kind of adjust the way that we talk to each other. You know, right. it has to be more professional. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's hard when you've known someone for so long, but yes. you know, we I think we've we've done a really good job of maintaining those boundaries. Any tips for listeners who might be running a partnership or maybe considering one? I would say probably don't go at it alone. <laughs> it is so much better to have someone to share the responsibility and the ups and the downs. And especially if you're going to have a partner just two of you, Make sure it's someone who compliments your skills and your personality. It's right. so like me and Jess are opposite in every way. So we can handle different parts of the business and think about any issue from all different angles. Right. Yeah. And no matter how difficult it ever gets, I don't think I could ever do something like this alone. <laughs> wow. That's a good point. I know you've got a, a focus on health and wellness. You touched on that earlier. Do you have any non-negotiables, any non-negotiable daily habits maybe that you believe you know help in your success? Um, I have a few. Yeah, I have yoga has been a huge part of my life. Now I go around three times a week. I've been trying to get into meditation so that when I'm running through my to do list at all hours of the day, and I'm multitasking, um, that I know how to just shut that off, and then come back more focused. And seven to eight hours of sleep while it's not always realistic. And I definitely did not do that in the first two and a half years of the business. It's made a huge difference in just my daily, you know, concentration level and energy. And that seems so simple, but a lot of people, especially entrepreneurs, will forgo sleep because it's just, it's 
the easiest thing to give up when you're working around the clock. But, you know, I'll I'll sacrifice other things, whether it's a social event or a trip that I want to take or something. That's awesome. Uh, So we're approaching the end of our conversation here, but our listeners or Blaze Nation love to hear resources and tools that our featured trailblazers use and engage with. Just wondering if you maybe have any books that you've read that have inspired you and and maybe our listeners would want to add to their summer reading list. Yeah, the hard thing about hard things. Yeah, (laughs) you've definitely read that. (laughs) (laughs) This is one that I have just started reading, but Shoe Dog, am I saying that right? That is about the Nike founder. Right. It's really important. Well, at least for, you know, me and Jess, we started with an artisan brand and we would like to have a massive, you know, household name brand. It's just interesting to see how other successful entrepreneurs have gone from really small scale to, you know, multinational corporations and managed all the, you know, challenges that come along with it. Mm. Love that. Love your story. I really appreciate you being transparent and sharing so much with us. Our last question for today, before we wrap up, I'd love to invite you really to share one action that our listeners jumping off this episode should do this week to help them blaze their trail. One action this week? Yes. Do something, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, (laughs) do something outside of your comfort zone. If you feel uncomfortable, but you know that it could get you something, you know, a new opportunity in the future, just try it. Just feel uncomfortable, push yourself and just do it. My example is on a whim applying to Shark Tank, growing up as an incredibly painfully shy girl and then pitching my company to 10 million people or going out and pitching to a group of, you know, it could just be a small group of practice competition if you're scared of public speaking, but something outside of your comfort zone. Love it. Sarah, tell us how we can stay connected to you. I will wrap up for today. Yeah, you can definitely find us on social media at Piper Y, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And we're definitely reach us at info at PiperY.com. And we are tuned in 24 seven. So we get back to you right away. That's Piper Y, P-I-P-E-R-W-A-I. Sarah Ribner, thank you so much for being our featured trailblazer today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Well, that's it for today. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Trailblazers podcast. I'll be posting links to all of today's book recommendations and links mentioned on our show notes page at tdpod.com. If today was your first time listening to the Trailblazers podcast, I just want to extend a warm Trailblazers welcome to you. We're so happy to have you here and we encourage you to go ahead and hit that subscribe button in your favorite podcast app. Go ahead and browse through some of our past episodes to keep the knowledge flowing. If you're a fan of the podcast and today's content, and you're maybe already subscribed to the podcast, please continue to share and invite your friends, your family, your colleagues to listen to an episode that you think might impact them most. We believe that someone listening to these inspiring stories will be moved to make significant changes that will have generational impact for many others, both now and well into the future. Don't miss next week's episode. New episodes are released each and every Monday by about 5 a.m. Eastern. Trailblazers, jump off this podcast today. Go find a way to rise above, go way beyond, and keep blazing your trail. Cheers. Cheers.